you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. A painful Monday on the street. All the major averages selling off. The Nasdaq now officially in a bear market, finishing the day down over 3.5%. The S&P down nearly 3%, and the Dow finishing this red Monday just under 800 points lower. Welcome to Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee, live from the Nasdaq market site, here to break down all of today's action. Tim Seymour, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, and Courtney Garcia of Payne Capital Management. And we start tonight with a catalyst for the sell-off, the great spike in oil prices. WTI crude surging at one point this morning above $130 a barrel for the first time since September 2008. It is now up more than 25% in just the past week. And that move pushed stocks deep into the red. The S&P seeing its worst day since October 2020. The Dow closing below 33,000 for the first time since last March. Both those indices now in correction territory. And the Nasdaq now officially in a bear market closing 20% below its all-time high. Take a look at the reopening trade on a day when New York starts rolling back mask mandates. COVID cases are dropping sharply. The going out stocks, they're staying in. So will the spike in oil prices take a lasting toll on economic growth? Guy, what do you say? I think it will, but you know, I actually think the back half of this year is gonna be fantastic for all the reasons that we were talking about in the fall of last year. I think, look, Tim's been on the energy trade for quite some time. We have talked about it. I happen to think crude would have gotten to this point regardless of what's going on in Eastern Europe. That's just my opinion. I think the fundamentals set it up. We just got there a lot faster. With that said, you see the move we saw in crude today, I mean, that has all the earmarks of what we call a blow-off top in our world. So not to suggest it's over, but in the short term, I think it may be. I will tell you, some of these uh, reopening trades, Expedia, for example, 217, all-time high, two weeks ago. It's down 30% in less than 10 trading days, which is remarkable in a word. I think you start looking at those names again. Yeah. Great irony that on a day we, we might have been celebrating reopening it with no masks and whatnot, that, again, what's been going on, airlines down 20% in a week, uh, unhedged airlines, and we're going to talk more about that later in the show. What worries me about the charts right now, and Chris Verone in a little bit going to give us some great insight, but that SMH, that SOX, that semiconductors index, and again, look at the break lower on Taiwan Semi, arguably the biggest semiconductor company in the world, but the SMH just as it did on the way up was the growth engine. It led us every single time. We've done these segments all the time, most important charts. I've probably picked SMH four or five times in the last year. The fact that it has taken out the Jan 24 low, the Feb 24 low, and I think it's leading us lower. And, and I think that makes sense given the environment and, and the cyclicality embedded there. The, the oil demand destruction, uh, the other notable dynamic today was consumer discretionary. And, and so, you know, a Lululemon now trading south uh, of 30 times, a Nike trading south of 30 times. Uh, uh, is this cheap enough relative to the last two years and their own earnings, uh, you know, or their own multiples make a lot of sense. But maybe, you know, the new order, I think a lot of people are not ready to, to, to take that jump. I mean, in terms of measures of the economy, I don't know if you guys caught this, but Steve Leisman was out with his CNBC rapid update, um, you know, a survey basically of economists. And the estimate for Q2 GDP has dropped significantly from 4.3 percent to three and a half percent PCE inflation measure um, went up to 5.3 percent from 3.7 percent for Q2. Courtney, have the markets factored that in in terms of the estimates that would need to come down? Yeah, I think what you're seeing here is I would actually argue the markets are selling off a lot more so than I think the fundamentals would justify. 
you're kind of getting this very typical flight to qual flight to safety right here, right? Where everybody's going out, you're seeing gold prices go up, bond prices are going up. You're kind of getting the baby thrown out with the bathwater where a lot of these industries, they're getting sold more so than they need to be. So you really just want to make sure you're looking at these more so as opportunities. Because I think the consumer is still very resilient here. I think a good example of that is when you look at Uber just came out to um, talk about some of their recent numbers. And they actually just show that their airport travel was up 50% month over month. And that's at the same time that we're seeing inflation up over 7% in the same month period. So you're seeing that there's a lot of this insensitivity to the price increases from the consumer with a lot of extra cash on hand. So yes, selling off a lot of this is to do with Russia and Ukraine. But I think you want to look long term. I completely agree with Guy here. I think the second half of the year is going to look a lot stronger. So there's a ton of opportunity to take advantage of right now. Guy, when you hear Uber, I mean, when I read that this morning, I thought, hey, that's that's pretty good. But I mean, is that a is that a forward looking indicator? Do you think that they're willing to come out and raise guidance, or is that conc is that concurrent in that it's this moment in time where we're not really factoring in the fact that consumers are going to be paying more for a longer period of time at the pump? They're going to be paying more for lots of different things for a longer period of time than we all thought. Oh, I'm sorry, Mel. Yeah, I I, Dan. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, here's the deal. I, we threw $4 trillion at this pandemic and growth has been pushed back, you know, quarter after quarter. Um, we've just seen the reopening trade. The second half of 2020 was supposed to be great. The second half of 2021 is supposed to be great. The second half of 2022 is supposed to be great. Here's the deal here. I've never traded a market. I've never been in, in an economy where there is so much uncertainty as there is right now. And we've spent the last few weeks or months scratching our heads talking about all of these different divergences in the market that are telling anybody who's had any history that something is going on here. The invasion, as Guy just said, of Ukraine has sped up a lot of these forces. And so I can't tell you that I was not on the same side as the Fed with their transitory commentary for the better part of 2021 as it relates to um, inflation. They obviously got that wrong. Anybody who was in that camp got that wrong. But here they are now. And you know what? They threw $4 trillion, okay, of their balance balance sheet at the pandemic here you know consumer balance sheets are in really good shape corporate balance sheets are in really good shape i think we should be able to withstand what is very likely to be now transitory pressures as it relates to some of these commodities they cannot continue to go up this way unless we are going to be in some very weird world that none of us have ever even contemplated and in that case you're going to have a lot more to worry about than your stock prices at some point there is demand destruction that happens, Guy. I think people get used to prices over time. I mean, that's been proven over and over again. And I don't think prices will stay as elevated as they are now. They will for a foreseeable future, but they will. Listen, what's the cure for higher prices? Tim higher talks prices. about all the time. Higher prices. And that's where we're on the verge of now. I don't think we've reached that point, but we're getting obviously a lot closer than we were. But Dan's point about the Fed is right. I think there are a lot of people, and again, just my opinion, that think somehow the Fed is going to come to the rescue here in terms of the market. I would push back and say, regardless now of outcome, what happens in Ukraine, if this is prolonged, extraordinarily inflationary. If it ends, Guess what? Extraordinary inflationary. In both cases, they're going to have to move. Tim says it all the time. 
The Fed, more Fed is more volatility, and that's exactly what we've been seeing since November, Mel. I, I think the Fed, you know, to pick your uh, view on how far down the Fed put is from here, I, I think the Fed recognizes Russia-Ukraine being a dynamic that is what it is. And, and while there are knock-on effects, this is, this is a tax on the world. Global growth is clearly uh, going down 2Q for sure, um, where, you know, Q1, we, we know it's going down. But I, I think you have a case here. It gets back to some of the market dynamics. And, you know, Dan's referring to weird stuff. Uh, you know, you can't have this kind of dislocation in, in highly leveraged asset classes like oil and gas and commodities and currencies um, without there being some portfolios that are blowing up. And I am sure we are going to start to see this. And I am sure like, today's market felt a lot like I thought we were going to have last Monday when, in fact, we thought oil was going to be up. I thought it was going to be up 20 percent. I thought I wasn't saying Lehman moment because that's a naughty word. I was saying dislocations. You freeze the pipes. You freeze the systems. We expected here from the Fed. They weren't that clear about this. We're offering dollar swaps, that kind of thing. Um, today's market felt a lot more like that. And, and what's extraordinary about where we are right now is this is a market that for most stocks um, is down 30 to 50 uh, percent. I'm not talking about the high multiple stocks. I'm talking about most of uh, consumer discretionary and a lot of other parts of the industrial world and financials are now joining that party. All right. Let's um, stick with energy here and head down to Houston. Brian Sullivan has been speaking with the who's who in the oil industry converging there for Sarah Week. Um, Brian, we are just talking about rising oil prices, demand destruction. What's the talk down there in terms of how high oil prices can go and at what point it actually hurts the industry? Yeah, I mean, it pains me to say this, but I agree 100% with Guy Adami, uh, which is it is not the price spike. It is the length of time that this occurs and continues. And that's really where we're at. And some of the CEOs that we talked to today, some of the government officials that are here as well, both on and off the record, say uh, we can withstand this in the short term. The American consumer has $2.3 trillion in cash on their balance sheet, according to Goldman Sachs. But if this continues to go on, maybe not even at these prices, call it $100 a barrel oil, $110, lower than today, but gas at 5 bucks nationwide, $450. The longer it goes, Mel, is the harder it's going to be. A month or two, we're fine, because to Guy's point, the inflationary impact does not just trickle through for a month and go away. Even if the war ended tomorrow, and let's all pray that it does, by the way, that inflationary impact will still lag on. We just can't do it for a year. So the Biden administration is considering, or Congress is also considering, a ban on Russian oil, Brian. And obviously that would just drive up global oil prices um, across the board. So it's going to hurt even more and it would actually help Russia because prices would be higher in, a, in effect. What are industry executives saying about that and the longer term impacts and whether or not they've been asked to increase production themselves? Well, let's be OK. Two questions there, Mel. Mm -hmm. Let's be brutally honest. I'm at an oil and gas conference. So these are oil and gas people. So they're going to support the oil and gas industry. So that obvious disclaimer aside, nobody thinks it's a good idea. Now, of course, these people here, they want more U.S. oil. They don't want Russian oil. But the reality is they also don't want oil to go to $175 a barrel because of the aforementioned demand destruction, Mel, that you mentioned. So it's weird. You think they'd want to say cut off Russian oil so that the U.S. can produce more. You can't just turn on the oil tap. It takes a long time. Tim knows this, by the way. He's dealt with oil and gas. He's dealt with Russia for years. This is a six-month to 12-month program. You can't just turn on the tap. So with that in mind, the U.S. oil and gas industry wants price stability. They don't want 130. Think about it this way, Mel. Almost exactly two years ago, we were at negative 37 yeah. a barrel. 
Now we're at 125 a barrel. How do you run a blank business like that? It's hard. They want stability. And I didn't use any bad words. Now you just bleep yourself, which we appreciate. <laughs> um, Brian, great to speak with you. Thank you. Brian Sullivan in Houston for us. Um, if it is sustained, though, Courtney, I mean, you mentioned the, the strength of the consumer. What point do you start getting concerned? Because when you are paying for it, I mean, we've seen it before. People stop going to restaurants. People don't buy the extra pack of cigarettes or whatever, you know, at the convenience store, at the gas station. We've seen the impacts before. We have seen that before, and it's not to say it can't happen, right? I mean, if inflation really is going that much higher than we're expecting it to, which is very much a risk here, um, it can affect the consumer. But I just don't think we're there yet. I don't think you're seeing it because inflation is happening, but also wages are continuing to rise here. And we are still sitting on a lot of cash. And there is still so much just pent up demand where people are wanting to travel and get out and do things. And I think just there's been so much of that people sitting on the sidelines with COVID, just not living their lives, where they are willing to sustain more price increases than I would say other times in history. Um, but again, we are gonna have to watch that. I would arguably say that is the biggest risk. I just don't see it quite yet as being something that we have to necessarily worry about. I think the consumer is strong enough to withstand this, at least what we're seeing right now. Full disclosure, I don't drive. So I don't fill right. up any tank. Um, is there a reason and for that? So, I mean, is it, well, I live in New York City, so there's no, there's no reason for about? me to, but, but my point is, is that I don't feel it per se. And so maybe the impact of paying $4 plus for gasoline, I can't relate to it, but if, imagine you're feeling you you're live farther away now because of the pandemic and you moved out to the suburbs and you're commuting into the city because everybody's back to the office and you're filling up a big old gas tank full of gas at four dollars a gallon or more. Well, I do drive and, and it is disappointing. And I'll tell you something else. People that think because we're coming out of a winter that wasn't terribly harsh, although we had some a very difficult January and part of February, uh, the U.S., auto uh, driver, the U.S. driver is 25% of, of, of oil demand, 25%, and we're just getting into driving season. So, um, you know, look at the numbers and, you know, EU, Nat Gas, uh, they're certainly right on the edge of, of uh, not only where their reliance on Russia has been something that has been greatly documented. We're going to talk maybe later about uranium and the impact there, but their Nat Gas underground storage is at 29%. That's about 24 points lower than the five-year average, which is, is probably a bit lower than it should be, but it's telling you where they are. There's not a lot of wiggle room. And it's interesting. This is not just energy. We've talked about this for a while. Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs, a month or so, he's been doing this for 30 years. He said in this, he runs commodities there in his entire career. He's never seen anything like it. I'm paraphrasing now, we are running out of everything. Mm -hmm. And when he says everything, I mean, look across the spectrum of commodities. Now, how do you trade it? Well, I know for a fact since last summer, we've been talking about, Tim has been talking about it for a while. We want to be in the all-services names. Look at that OIH, which bottomed out around 175. Look at where it closed today. I mean, we've actually talked about 285 being a natural level for it to go. And for finally these equities catching up to the commodity. And you saw that in spades over the last two or three trading days. Here's now. the bigger question, Dan. I'll direct this one to you. I, I think I'll, I know the answer you're going to give. Um, but can you be long the commodity trade and be long equities over the next couple of months? Does that make any I mean, sense to you? Um, maybe. I, I mean, okay. I, I don't think you buy the commodity trade here. It's gone. You know, if you've been watching okay. our show, you've been you've been hearing Tim and Guy talk about the fundamentals and how they've been improving for a long biased energy trade. I was on the other side of it, but they were correct about that. And then this sort of move just kind of obviously threw a little fuel on that fire here. You know, I mean, listen, Mel, as you think about stocks, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stocks that you probably liked a year ago. You liked their businesses. You liked 
their management. You like their balance sheets. You liked a lot of things about them. You like the fact that they were going up. Well, they're down 50, 60, 70% now. So over the next three to nine months or so, as this year plays out, you're going to have some opportunities and some great names that are going to have another leg here that's not just a pandemic winner. But the one thing that I've learned after the dot-com implosion and after the global financial crisis, when you have these sorts of disconnects, when you have these sorts of crashes, and make no mistake about it, don't look at the S&P 500. The stock market has crashed, okay, for, for a whole host of sectors. There's a handful of names that are making that S&P down only 13% on the year look pretty good here. But it doesn't look pretty good because if you look under the hood, there's a lot of devastation here. It's going to take some time for this stuff to work out. The last mm -hmm. point I'll make here is the S&P was up 26% last year, not including dividends. The largest peak to trough decline it had was 6%. The average peak to trough decline in the stock market, the S&P 500, over the last 50 years, it's been about 14%. So we're down 13% from the highs right here, okay? Valuations, 19 times S&P, still seems kind of expensive. It's greater than the 10-year average here. There's more room to go here. And the last thing I'll just say, I'll reiterate it, it's gonna take some time. We are not gonna be reversed this time, people. So all you BTFD people out there, just cool your jets. It's gonna take a little bit. That's by the you-know-what dip, by the uh, way. Dan's making some really interesting mm -hmm. arguments. Really quickly, I'll, I'll just tell you, the, the positioning right now, though, the market came into, I mean, the last week, two weeks, extremely de-risked. Um, investor sentiment, awful. Um, I mean, the contrarian indicators are blinking. This is a pretty interesting time. And I, I think, you know, we're all trying to point out both sides of the trade here. Um, and I'm not telling you I love what's going on. I told you I think SMH tells us we go a little bit lower. Uh, we priced in a lot of risk. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's not just oil seeing a spike here. Gold hitting its highest level since August of 2020. It is now up more than 9% this year. So is there any more room to run? Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus, a Baird company. Chris, what do you see? Hey, Mel, yeah, well, I think certainly gold as a hedge here uh, continues to make sense. But if we just put this in some context, as far as the broader market goes, I think the first thing we all have to say is we know we don't know. But if we're going to speak objectively about the price signals that we're seeing every day, I mean, there are really three things I look for at a tradable low. I look for VIX above 40. I look for spikes in put calls. I look for spikes in trend. And we're sitting here with you know, S&P down 13 and Q's down almost 20, and we really can't check any of those boxes yet. You know, is this correction in equities over with Apple still above the 200-day, right? So I think ultimately the good stuff probably has to get sold here before we're through this. And if you just look at the next slide here, it's triple Q's versus S&P. You know, we talked a lot about in the early COVID days how uh, big events speed up what's already in motion. Well, that happens on the other side as well. And triple Qs have been peaking relative S&P for the better part of the last six months. And the Russia-Ukraine events have only accelerated that, that ratio at new lows today. So what do we own or how do we hedge out this risk? I still think gold is frankly underowned. It acts great. Uh, if you look at the gold flows, the flows into GLD over the last three months are just nowhere near as aggressive as they were in summer of 2020. So I think there's room for sentiment to get more pronounced here. And then when we take a back, um, and then when we take a step back and look at the longer term chart, monthly momentum is fantastic. You know, we're punching above 2000. I think it circled 24, 2500 on the gold chart before this is all said and done. Um, but as part of the bigger story, right, are we seeing that indiscriminate capitulative price action that often marks the lows in equities? I think it's early to make that call, Mel. 
Um, Chris, GDX is often a levered play to gold when gold yeah. prices go up, but but oil and, and fuel, it's a big input for, for gold miners. And I'm wondering, which is, which is the better chart in your view? I think the better chart here is the physical. And when you look at a lot of the gold stocks, the individuals, they really have not taken out their summer of 2020 highs yet. Gold is closer to doing that. So I think you want to own the physical here. We also can get just a much better read on sentiment. As we talked about, GLD flows, so flows into the gold ETF, are just not as aggressive as one might expect. Now, there's been some inflows the last four or five days there, not surprisingly. But when you look at this over a longer time period, I think there's room to go before that gets crowded. It's not here. And then last quick question, Chris, I just want to underscore this yeah. notion that, that the good stuff has to, you feel has to come down too. So Apple, in your view, yeah. should go lower. I just find it hard to believe we take S&P down 15 and Q's down 20 yeah. and we don't get Apple below the 200. And you know, on top of that, I would say, like, don't forget when oil spiked in 08, ultimately they went after staples and utilities as well. Staples and utilities ultimately got sold before that was all said and done. So don't make the mistake that just because stuff is up here, it's protected. In these corrective phases, there are no sacred stocks. There are no um, unsellable names. All right. Good advice. Chris, thank you. Good to see you. Chris Verone of Strategus. Um, Tim, you've been on the gold trade. Yeah, I, I like it. And if also something else just to drop into your horizon is the last time gold really had a spike. And so not the summer of 2020, which is the, the, the previous high that we are, are about to get through or have got through that the GDX has not. Chris is absolutely right. Uh, and I think it's going through it. And, and, and but I is, is a decade ago when a, a lot of this stress on Europe. Uh, remember what was going on with U European sovereign bonds. And, and so this is very dollar positive in the short run. Um, ultimately, so very, very positive for gold. And I think diversification by central banks is, is onward. Yeah. I'm with Tim on that. Newmont Mining, I th multi, when I say multiple here, I think it's like a 40-year high in Newmont Mining today, approaching $80 a share. We haven't seen levels like that, as I mentioned, in decades. I think gold's got a lot of room to the upside, and you're finally seeing for the first time in a long time the decoupling of gold from crypto, which is a conversation we've had a number of times, but it's happening right before our eyes. Coming up, a bank beatdown. Financials deep in the red, a stock sell-off. So is there more pain ahead for this group? Or traders dig into that trade next. But first, metal mania, nickel soaring to its highest level ever. That could spell some pretty big trouble for the auto sector. The details ahead. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
Welcome back to Fast Money. The major automakers falling sharply today, and it's not only oil hitting these stocks, it's a whole commodity complex. Nickel rallying 75% today, hitting its highest level ever. Our fellow Bo joins us with the challenges ahead for this sector. Phil. Yeah, it really is the commodity complex that's hurting the automakers because all of the key ingredients, not just for EVs, which gets so much attention right now, but also when you're talking about really any, manu- any vehicle you're manufacturing, whether it's internal combustion, a hybrid, or an EV, all of the prices are completely through the roof. Let's start first off with nickel. You talked about how it's surging. Oh, yeah, it's surging. The forward contract was up 74% today. That is the biggest one-day increase for a forward contract of nickel since 2005. Russia's supply of nickel, remember, they they are a world leader when it comes to the uh, supply of nickel. That's in question. Will it be restricted? Will it be completely cut out? If that's the case, you're going to see these prices continue to stay high. Then you've got aluminum. Here's another commodity where you're seeing a surge in the prices. It's close to a 10-year high right now. And then you've got lithium. And we've talked about this for some time, Melissa. Lithium is so crucial to the, the, the development and manufacturing of EV battery cells and battery packs. And as lithium has gone up in price, you still see the automaker saying, oh, yeah, we're going to be planning to build even more EVs than people were expecting four months ago, six months ago, a year ago. Take a look at Ford. Just last week, it said that it plans to build two million EVs annually by, 2000 and, uh, by 2026. So now what you're looking at is a much greater commitment on the part of Ford. And by the way, we've seen this from other automakers as well. And it has analysts like Adam Jonas saying, wait a second, we're not buying this completely. Now, he wrote a note today about Ford, but it basically could be applied to a number of automakers who have put out some very bold projections. And when it comes to Ford, he said, where, were, where will Ford source all of these raw materials? Call us if you have any ideas. This is par for the course in terms of what analysts are expecting when it comes to the automakers, which is you've made these commitments, Melissa. Now can you meet them? I want to let you know that late this afternoon I talked with one analyst who works with a number of automakers, and he said no way that these guys make the commitments. No way they make the commitments that they've put out there. And yet, they are there. Now, Jim Farley last week when we pressed him on this, Melissa, he said we've got more news that's coming. Do not doubt that Ford will be able to make this commitment. We're not calling him a liar. What we are saying is a lot of people are looking at your projections and other automakers' projections, and they're saying, we just don't see it right now. Um, Tesla, is there any... uh, Phil, I'm thinking Tesla, because I want to ask you about Tesla. Tesla has been able to sort of circumvent many of the supply chain issues that the other other automakers have been grappling with, but they still make automobiles that require metals that go into doors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there any sense that they have secured supply since they've been sort of at the forefront of dealing with supply issues? Uh, the understanding that I have is that they probably have a better handle on the supply chain when it comes to mm-hmm. the EV battery cells and battery packs. Having said that, nickel is nickel. And we've heard from yeah. Elon Musk, and he said, please, if you want to start a, a nickel mine, we would love it because we need more nickel. The one advantage that I think Tesla has, Melissa, right now is that it can bring on supply much faster than a number of other automakers who, at this point, they're still making commitments. You look at the Gigafactory in Texas, that's going to be coming online fairly soon. And when it does, there are a lot of people who might be saying, I want an electric vehicle. I don't want to pay $4.450 for a gallon of gas. And they're going to look at Tesla because the supply will be there much faster than other automakers will be able to come up with EVs. All right. 
Phil, thank you. You bet. Phil LeBeau joining us from uh, headquarters. So, Courtney, the automakers are facing a higher input costs, supply chain issues that preexisted the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and a consumer that may be strapped a little bit in terms of facing inflation. What do you think of the automakers? Yeah, the, I mean, the automakers are definitely going to be ones that are going to to feel a lot of these commodities prices. And it is why we're making sure that in all of our clients' portfolios, you do have things like commodities and energies, because you are going to have things like automakers are getting hit a lot harder than others right now. Um, I think the question is how long this will sustain itself, right? Because I think a lot of the supply chain issues will hopefully get settled here in the near-term future. And a lot of the inflation that we are seeing is expected to come down probably over the next year here. So this is a much shorter-term event. I don't think it's going to be as much of a long-term event. So if you are of the mindset that inflation is eventually going to come down here, you might want to take advantage of this as an opportunity. And that doesn't just go with um, automakers. You're going to see that kind of across these industries. Airlines are getting hit hard as well as they're seeing their commodities prices increase. So it's all these underlying costs are going to impact their bottom line. But how long it's going to impact is the question. If you think that it will eventually get resolved, I think there is some hope of that. Then you can take advantage of this opportunity. You've been in them, Tim. So what do you think? Well, I, I tell you what, Ford down 36 percent in 36 days. Uh, and yet they've made these major announcements, announcements on EV and how hard they're going now up to 40 billion dollars, whether you believe they can find the 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 inputs to batteries and whatnot. I, I just think this is an opportunity to be buying them. I think there's still if you look at the average uh, age of a car on the road and you look at the cycle here, uh, there's a lot of cars to be bought. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily going to be a case where those those are purchases that are more than just delayed. I, I think you want to buy for it at these levels. Very cheap. Uh, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Banks get beat. Big names withdrawing some gains as markets sell off. So how should investors play the move? The financial focus is next. Plus, a metal melt-up. Uranium prices soaring as geopolitical tensions rage on. So is this trade ready to double? The traders break it down next, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take another look at how markets kicked off the week. All three major indices closing near their lows of the day. The Nasdaq leading the losses down more than 3.6 percent, now down 20 percent from its all-time high. Meanwhile, check out some of the big banks getting hit hard yet again in the sell-off. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley are among some of today's biggest losers. And the stories even worse over the past month. Bank of America, Morgan Stanley each down 21 percent. Wells Fargo down 20 percent. So such a huge chunk taken out of some of these big names. 
Are there any that look interesting or Dan, are they telling us something? Is there a message coming from, and we've talked about this before, about the idea of contagion, the idea of, of maybe portfolios blowing up because of huge volatile moves across various asset classes. What do you think is going on here? Yeah, I, I think that Tim said it earlier today. I mean, it's not really cool to talk about contagion in financial markets until it's really on your doorstep. And it's pretty evident because that just feels like it's kind of yelling fire um, in a crowded cinema here. But the way the bank stocks act today, it acts like there's something going on. And, and I don't know why Bank America would be down, you know, close to 7% or so um, versus, let's say, you know, a bank like Citibank that's expected to maybe have more exposure overseas, which was down down like 2%. So a lot of kind of kind of funky price action um, going on there. And I guess the other point is that we've also learned, you know, from the financial crisis is that, you know, banks are going to tell us what they need to tell us, uh, you know, when it's the exact last minute they have to say it, right? So they're not going to try to get out in front of this sort of stuff. And I think we can all feel very comfortable that U.S. bank balance sheets are in much better places than they were, let's say, 10 or 13 years ago. Um, but again, the price action is kind of shoot first, ask questions later right now. Um, Courtney, is that is that the baby with the bathwater notion that you were talking about before? Or I mean, they're they're facing a flattening yield curve, they're facing potential economic slowdown, they're facing potential contagion issues. Is there a reason to be in the banks? You're going to, yeah, it's going to be partially some of that contagion, but I think you're also seeing interest rates have come down a little bit here, and that's definitely going to affect the valuations of your banks. Um, I think longer term, though, your banks here are looking really attractive compared to the overall markets. And I do think you're seeing this huge disparity between your growth and your value categories. And I think that will probably continue, right? When we see a lot of, well, hopefully, see this Russia and Ukraine um, kind of hopefully get back into the less of the headlines. I think you will start to continue to see inflation go in. I think we'll continue to see rates rise here, which ultimately will benefit the banks over the long run. And so I think you want to just take a look at making sure you're only looking at the quality names. Like take a JP Morgan, for example. They're trading about 13 times earnings. They pay a 3% dividend. I do think longer term, I do still like the bank. So scooping them up right here at, at better shares is a great opportunity. For the first time in a while now, J.P. Morgan's trading less than two times tangible book. We haven't seen that in quite some time. I think with, how, with J.P. Morgan, I think the market, which was looking at valuation since Thanksgiving, finally said that bank's too rich as well. I'll say at a certain point, you got to look at it. I happen to think 125 is level. Quickly about Citi, though. I've been dead wrong on that. I thought at 75% of tangible book, it was a screaming buy. Clearly, there are more European issues than I thought. All right. Coming up, uranium. Price for the metal skyrocketing as the Russian-Ukraine conflict rages on. So could prices double from here? We got the details next. Plus, food fight. Restaurant stocks in the red as operations in Russia come into focus. How those names are responding to the risk. Much more Fast Money right after this. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uranium prices spiking as the Russia-Ukraine war rages on. The Global X uranium ETF up more than 13% in the past month. Elon Musk tweeting, it is now extremely obvious Europe should restart dormant nuclear power plants. This is critical to national and international security. So with oil and natural gas price spiking, there could be a push for nuclear here. Um, for more on where uranium prices could be headed, let's bring in Rohan Reddy of Global X. Rohan, great to have you with us. 
Great to be back, Melissa. It, it may be a matter of, of energy security in the long run, but immediately, Rohan, can they actually restart these power plants? A lot of them are not operational, and, and a lot of them are on their way to being decommissioned in Europe. Well, I think Elon hit the nail on the head. Right now, nuclear is one of the best power sources that you could have, not just in Europe, but even across the world. And so a couple of options that Europe has is they could start to delay the phase out of some of those nuclear power plants that were scheduled to be decommissioned. So for Germany, uh, they were scheduled to phase this out in 2022 this year. They could start to delay that. Uh, Belgium has shown some pushback as well. So I think that's an immediate option, number one. Option number two is uh, building new uh, nuclear power plants from the startup. So we've seen this not just in uh, Europe, but even uh, in big power centers like uh, Asia. Uh, those have been really supportive of uh, adopting nuclear power. So we think there's a lot of options in this market. So what's been priced into the price of uranium at this par- at this point, Rohan? I mean, take, for instance, a three operational plants in Germany, they're, as you mentioned, scheduled to be decommissioned by the end of 2022. If they extended that life cycle, which is not necessarily an easy thing to do, as I understand it, according to what I've read, um, what would that mean for prices? Well, we've seen a little bit of that play out in the U.S. so far. So we've seen the first 80-year permit given to a couple of the nuclear power plants. And even if it uh, does become feasible at some point in Germany, that could add some real demand uh, towards some of those uranium producers that, you know, did get hit by COVID and they haven't been able to restart production as fast as they would have liked to. So we think right now prices right around the $50 pound range, uh, they could shoot up even into the $60 range. And then when you see all this momentum from uh, demand in new nuclear power plants being built, combined with the fact that there is key producer risk. So Kazakhstan uh, is one of the biggest producers in the world. They've seen some geopolitical tensions uh, along with the Russia-Ukraine crisis and the risk off uh, sell-off there. So we do think that prices could even shoot up from that $60 range to potentially even 70 80 just off of producer risk. Rohan, it's Tim Seymour. I'm long your ETF. I'm long uranium more broadly. And, and I think, you know, in, independent of Russia, Ukraine, uranium is going a lot higher. Um, help people understand in the ETF uh, what the exposure is. And, and, you know, there are some more pure plays uh, and ways to get more derivative exposure. CCJ, obviously the biggest position, uh, Kamiko, which is, uh, you know, as pure of a play as I think you can find. But help us help the help the audience understand how to get exposure. This is a real full value play across the entire uh, uranium value chain. So we have the miners, you know, companies like CCJ, uh, Kazatomprom, those are like some of the biggest in the world. And then we also have some that are, that are involved in uh, the entire downstream uh, part of the nuclear aspect. So about 70% of our ETF is what you'd consider pure play. Uh, the remaining 30% is across that uh, value chain that includes some utility companies. So we think it's a nice exposure to companies uh, involved both directly towards uranium prices and some that are involved more on the utility side. So in down markets, it does help blunt some of uh, the downside impact. And we have seen a lot of investor interest within our URA ETF. This year alone, uh, we have about $300 million in net new assets that have come into our fund. Uh, and it's about $1.5 billion in assets today, a record level. Rohan, great to have you. Thank you so much. Rohan Reddy, the uranium ETF. Um, why this one? Why a comprehensive sort of 
view of the investment? Why not just go CCJ? Well, or, because because the mine, see, look, CCJ I've owned and and again talk about Back to the Future. This is this is a stock from ten years ago, yeah. and, and this is a stock that we've talked about on this show, and and they, they've had significant problems with a handful of their mines, and so you know their MacArthur mine is kind of their their flagship. They've got a new mine, uh, Cigar Lake, coming on with higher prices. It certainly gives them the ability to to, to reinvest in additional production, and I think they're going to do that. I think right now um, it is a very good call, but that's the problem. These are miners. And we've seen this. We've seen this in gold. We've seen mm-hmm. this in copper. And, and you have a lot of risk tied up into their operations. No question. CCJ, though, as Tim knows, is the second largest uranium producer on the planet. I think it represents 18, 19 percent. And the stock, listen, again, I understand it was past history. 2007, this is a $52 stock that fell on hard times. A lot of it's self-induced. But if they figure it out, this $25 stock should be a $50 stock in this environment. Coming up, restaurants resist. Some big names still operating in Russia despite the war, and the holdouts are hit, the holdout is hitting the stock prices. More on that next. Plus, shares of Bed Bath and Beyond soaring as GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen takes the stake. The move sparking some furious action in the options pits. We got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Starbucks, McDonald's, Yum! Brands, all moving lower today. Those companies under pressure to suspend operations in Russia. Let's get to Kate Rogers for more on what's at stake and how the brands are responding. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Well, Yum! Brands KFC has the biggest footprint between Russia and Ukraine with more than 1,000 locations. McDonald's has 955 locations between those two countries. Starbucks with a much smaller presence of 130 in Russia, according to Cowan. Now, for McDonald's, the entire region represents about 9% of reported revenues, but a smaller degree of its operating profit and same-store sales at under 3%. The optics here, though, are getting tough. New York State's comptroller reaching out to several companies, including McDonald's, McDonald's, Estee Lauder, and Pepsi asking them to consider pausing their ongoing operations in Russia. As of now, none of the three have announced that they are going to pause those operations. We've reached out to McDonald's several times over the last week, and the company's declined to comment. Starbucks has condemned the attack and said it will donate any royalties from business operations in Russia to humanitarian relief efforts for Ukraine. Yum! Brands also said it's monitoring the situation closely, donating $1 million to the Red Cross to support relief efforts there. What is notable here, though, McDonald's is majority company-operated in both Russia and Ukraine, which could give it some more autonomy over how it proceeds, while Starbucks and Yum! are licensed and franchised over there. Melissa, back over to you. So theoretically, it should be much easier for McDonald's to say we're, we're done with Russia, Kate. What percentage of revenues? I mean, is this a big percentage that we're talking about? Yeah, so it's about 9% of reported mm-hmm. revenues, but a much uh, smaller degree of its same-store sales and profit at under 3% there. And for Starbucks and Yum! Brands, even smaller, under 2%, Cowan says. So McDonald's definitely has among the largest footprints there. And as mentioned, it's mostly company-operated. So if they did seemingly want to stop operations there, there's no middleman to go through, right? There's not a major yeah. franchisor or franchisee, rather, and a licensed partner to work with. So it's just interesting. They've declined to comment, you know, throughout the last week and a half. We'll see what happens. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers. Courtney, do you like any of these uh, quick serve restaurants? I think these are really going to have a lot of risks that we're looking at right now. I think McDonald's is actually one of the most interesting that we know here where, um, yes, they are going to have less franchises in Russia, but they also have a lot of exposure in Europe, which hopefully none of this bleeds over there. But what you want to make sure of is they're probably a little bit more exposed to whether having boycotts in the U.S. or in Europe. I think they're probably have 
um, those boycotts can affect them a little bit more. So I think there might be some more of that to come, and especially they're the only ones who haven't responded to this yet of anything that they're taking a stance one way or the other. And I think you are going to see some of their consumers or investors kind of putting a stand to that. So what will happen, I don't know, but I do think you might see some more ups and downs as we, as we move forward here. Dan, we have seen some pretty notable protests um, coordinated on social media of various brands for various reasons. And uh, it's, it's amazing that it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I guess, Mel, what I would say is it's a really hard precedent to set this early um, in this kind of war, if you will. And, you know, Guy has been kind of talking about the potential for some sort of dust up with China um, and Taiwan. I know that's on a lot of uh, people's radar here. What happens if there's some, you know, some situation over there? Have they just set a precedent now? These U.S. multinationals, which are really relying on a lot of international growth to kind of get things back going in a way. So to me, it's a really tough one. I, I, you know, listen, this is a very unique situation right here, um, an invasion of, of, uh, of one of our allies, if you will, sovereign borders. So there should be some repercussions in, in, the, um, in the private sector, in my opinion. Coming up to infinity and beyond. Bed, Bed Bath shares soaring as a big name takes a stake. We'll tell you how options traders play this news. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the monster move in shares of Bed Bath & Beyond. The retailer soaring as much as 35% today on news that GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen had taken a nearly 10% stake in the company and is pushing for change. The news also causing a major frenzy among options traders, many of whom are betting on an even bigger rally. Mike Coe joins us to break down the action. Not a surprise, Mike, since GameStop is a, an options darling. Yeah, this is uh, definitely seeing some of that meme stock mania type of options activity. It traded about 16 times its average daily options volume today. It was actually one of the top 10 most active single stock options. And think about what putting it in the realm of Facebook and Tesla, Apple and the like. So very extraordinary activity we're seeing here. The most active options where the weekly 30 strike calls that expire this Friday, we saw 22,300 of those trading for just under two bucks. Now put that in perspective, the buyers of these calls are risking close to 12% of last Friday's trading uh, close for the stock, uh, just to bet that the stock would double by the end of this week. But before anybody wants to pile into that, I would also caution you, the second most active options were the 20 strike puts that also expire on Friday. That's interesting. Mike, thank you. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade Time. Let's go around the horn. Dan? Uh, yeah, JetBlue. Uh, no international exposure to no. That's where I want to be if you want to try to buy one of those. I'll go back. Courtney? Uh, JP Morgan, we mentioned this earlier, but I really like the banks right now. I think you're going to continue to see that value over growth, and this is a great way to play that. Tim? A bright green spot in the market today was J&J, who I think is a pharma portfolio, but obviously consumer products and some diversification here, like J&J. Guy. A bright green spot for me is spending time with you and Tim. Aww. I haven't seen Aww. Tim physically in so long. It's, sure. If we had time, sure. we would hug. We would. LAC. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Uh, Jim is off tonight, but do not go anywhere. CNBC's special report on global investing in 2022 starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 